what was your chief motivator? Did you have any, was there any reward other than the fix you got from doing drugs with friends? I just wanted people to like me. Because I felt like nobody really liked me, truly. And that was the big motivator for me, was just trying to get people to like me. But at the end of the day, like none of that mattered because I didn't like myself. Right. The fastest way to hate yourself is to change your identity to, to, to fit the mold of somebody else. Like to, to, to lose yourself so much for the sake of trying to fit in with other people that you're so far removed from the person that you actually wanted to become and the person that you actually like that you're looking back and like, what the heck happened? Welcome to this episode of Rooted Recovery Stories. I'm Patrick Custer, your host, and so excited to be here with my new friend, Doug Bobst, author, speaker, coach, and someone who has really built his profession and life mission on helping others do what he did in a huge way, which is turning adversity into advantage. Nailed it. Awesome. Um, so thanks for being here. Welcome back to Nashville. Thanks. I, I lo- it's a great city. Always love a good excuse to be in Nashville. And it's great to meet you in person. Absolutely. You too. And welcome your gym shorts. For those of you listening, <laughs> Doug came in full health nut gear because I'm assuming you got a great workout in this morning before uh, coming in. I did, but I didn't, I completely forgot about the traffic in Nashville. So I was like eating some breakfast and I was like looking up the Uber to see like how long it was going to take. Cause it took me like maybe 15, 20 minutes to get yeah. to Bellevue yesterday. And then it said like 40, 45 minutes. And I was like, Oh no, like I'm going to either be late or go take a shower and change. And I'm like, you know what? Like I don't like when people are late for my interviews, right. so I'll, I'll just eat it and then just get made fun of on the podcast. <laughs> I really admire that. Actually, yeah, I'm slightly making fun of you, but, but I, because I think one of the gifts for me from personal recovery that I continually have to strive for and I'm doing better at though is, um, you know, I would, I never was able to show up for what I said I was going to show up for. And if I did, I was like super late and, um, I have such mad respect for people who prioritize being on time. Um, I still struggle with it, but I'm way better than I was uh, pre sobriety. <laughs> so, yeah. Man, yeah. I mean, I just think a lot of it comes down to, I mean, for me, it's like self respect and just showing up for myself and just knowing that, like, if I'm not showing up on time for somebody else, like, what does that say about me? And not to shame people who are mm-hmm. late. Cause I know that that's a thing and people have super busy lives yeah. and I get that. But I just think for me personally, it's like, if I'm going to practice integrity and authenticity, if I have the option to be on time, I'm going to be on time. Like if you hit unexpected traffic, car accident, something happens, totally get it. But for mm-hmm. me, when I'm faced with a choice, like, okay, I can either you know, brighten myself up, go take a shower and change clothes so that I feel you know better about myself in that way. Or just say, you know what, like part of my gift, I think is just being able to be real, relatable and raw and share authentically. Like why not just say, go and, you know, Uber there now and just figure out the rest later. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, of course the one, like the one thing I had to do is make sure my hair wasn't all messed up. Cause I literally had headphones on and it looked <laughs> like I just rolled out of bed. Cause that's not a good, that's something that's not like necessarily a good look either. It's just to act like you don't care and just rolled out of bed. I mean, I had a valid excuse that I was, I was exercising, went for a good run, good. Went, to, went to Chick-fil-A, got some breakfast awesome. and then 
And then just got in the Uber from there and rolled over here. Love it. Well, I'm glad you're here no matter what. And uh, excited to talk to you. about uh, uh, This is really one of my favorite topics about transformation. We talk about so much on this podcast. I think that one of the greatest things we can do when we have overcome any obstacle in life is to not keep it to ourselves, but to share what happened to us and how we did it. Because it's a gift. And if we keep it all to ourselves, like what, what good are we doing in the world? You know? And so I'm so glad that you're doing that, um, on, on this platform, on your own podcast platform. Um, and using that as a catalyst, uh, as well in throughout like your whole profession with people. Yeah. Cause I think what happens is when we go through hard times, we think we're alone, like both in the situation and when we get out of it, we're like, well, I'm ashamed to talk about this. Cause I don't, even though like deep down, we know that other people go through addiction and mental health stuff, divorce, whatever the example is, we still feel alone because we feel like, oh, they're not going to understand my version of this story mm-hmm. or my story isn't as dark or deep as that person's or my, my, my version of my story is harder than that other person, whatever the story is we make up. But what tends to happen is when you start to share authentically, whether it's like on a podcast, whether you're at a 12 step meeting, whether you're at coffee with a friend, whatever you're doing, you start to realize like, wow, like there's purpose in what I went through. Not only because that's a, becomes a mechanism to process some of it because now you're talking about it and that burden is like being lifted off of you because you don't feel so ashamed of the situation, but maybe you're talking to somebody that's on day one, day mm. seven, day eight, or yeah. the person who continues to relapse over and over again, just feels so terrible about where they're at in their life. And that then that person doesn't feel so alone. And then you're helping others. And we all know, like, I mean, I think the principles of 12 steps and recovery, like I think everybody should practice because being of service, helping other people, owning your stuff, being accountable, like all those things can be so transformative in your life because no matter if you struggle with addiction or mental health or not, you're still going to have hard times in your life. Mm-hmm. And that's the a big um, theme of the show, of my show. And... What's the name of your show? The Adversity Advantage. Heck yeah. So, and I share that because like the fastest way I believe to make yourself feel better, one of the fastest ways is to help somebody else. Mm-hmm. So it's like on the days where you're feeling like crap, or the days you're like going through it, like buying that person behind you a cup of coffee when you're at a coffee shop or reaching out to somebody you care about or holding the door. It's just because when we get trapped in our own stuff, it can be very like self-centered and not in a bad way, but it just is because we're thinking about our problems, thinking about how we're going to solve our problems and we shut the rest of the world out. So Mm -hmm. I think if you can just take like a little bit of a sidestep out of that, focus your attention on somebody else, it helps mitigate like some of that darkness. Absolutely. That can be so suffocating at times. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of the darkness, you know, adversity into advantage. um, I think one of the things that's so useful in having these conversations is talking about the adversity, where it started, what the struggle was, because whether you're a mom or dad, husband or wife, uh, a, a support to a person struggling, or you're the person struggling, hearing the struggle is the thing that I think a lot of us, whether you're listening and you're, you just love a good story or you're listening and you're identifying either way, like, 
we get to pull somebody in because in many ways, the interesting part is the struggle. (laughs) You know, we could talk about solution by itself all day long. And I think that um, it's so it's so precious to be able to speak to both of those things together. So I want to hear about what was the adversity for you in life? Um, and I mean, we can start before that, you know, but when would you say, um, let's lead into when would you say that that started for you? So growing up, I used adverse adversity to my complete disadvantage. And my adversity was that my parents got divorced when I was five. It was a pretty like, uh, brutal divorce where they didn't speak to each other a whole lot and a lot of fighting, a lot of court stuff. Then I started to develop this what's wrong with me mentality because a lot of my friends, people I spent time with, their parents were all together. So I saw this different family dynamic that didn't exist where I was. And then I was bullied in school a lot. I was told that I think I had Down syndrome. I was picked on a lot, called names and just, I just started to internalize it because I had started to develop that what's wrong with me mentality. Then mm-hmm. kids are picking on me for no reason. And like, you know, I wasn't a kid that like was bullying other kids. Cause I couldn't like, I, I could, under, I could, I guess I could re- understand if somebody were to bully me cause I was picking on somebody else. Like I could see like, okay, like I probably in a way got a little bit of what I deserve for picking on somebody else, but there was none of that love sports, love playing sports, love watching sports, but I just wasn't good. I wasn't athletic. I wasn't coordinated. My vertical leap was like two inches, like no exaggeration. <laughs> and and so I, I felt so miserable inside because I felt like, what's what's wrong with me? Like, I have the same thing as all of my friends every, and, and everybody else. I'm trying hard. But like, why isn't life working out for me? And I just felt so much emotional pain that started to stack up because at the same time, I also wasn't getting any attention from girls that I liked in school. And as a young boy, at least for me, I thought being successful as a young man was that you had to be good at sports. You had to be in a certain friend group. You had to get attention from pretty girls. Where did you get that message? I just, I don't know if it's society or just something that maybe yeah. I just saw a girl. I have no idea. But what were, you, what were your, like, when you think back to as a youngster, like, who were your main male role models? I didn't really, I didn't really have any. I mean, I, I saw people on like TV, yeah. athletes. So and it stuff. was, it was pop culture, basically. Pop culture, yeah. Because I said, like, like I came from a, a, a place of, my parents were divorced and, you know, I had, I think that causes um, dysfunctional relationships mm-hmm. just, you know, by itself. And I, I guess, and I saw kids who seemed happier where they were having yeah. fun, again, getting attention from girls and being good at sports. But I also, it was also like, I loved sports. It wasn't like I just did sports because I thought that that would make me happy. Mm-hmm. It was, I loved, I was the kid who stayed up late to watch ESPN, got up early to watch ESPN, collected baseball cards because I wanted to. And so, and in life, you're taught, like, you can be, you can be whoever you want to be. You can be whatever you want when you're a kid. Like, if you want to be an astronaut, be an astronaut. If you want to be a lawyer, be a lawyer. And it's just not true. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's certain, there's certain things that that, that limit you from that. Like, I, I wanted to be a professional athlete, but I was limited in that. Like, there's no, I mean, could I have tried harder? I mean, probably, but I don't, I still don't think I, I had the gifted genetics or the gifted just, you know, ability to become a professional athlete. So I had that. And then I just didn't know how to deal with the turmoil and the emotional pain. And the, the bullying was was really tough because I would come home and, and often I would cry because I was afraid of going to school. I was just unsure of where my life was going to head. So I was like, if life is this bad for me now, how much worse is it going to get? Like, what's my life going to be like in five years, 10 years, 15 years? And 
I played the victim role a lot. And I think, you know, people will say to me, well, you were just a kid. I was just a kid. And, and in a way that was, I guess, kind of justified, but it still didn't make it right for me to behave in the way that I did after that, mm. where I used, started using weed as a coping mechanism to deal with the emotional pain. Mm -hmm. And once I started smoking weed, I felt this massive weight come off my back where I could finally be at peace with myself and I have to worry about what people thought of me anymore or any of the things that I described earlier. And that created more adversity for me. Can I stop you right there? I think that this is like this, this um, fork in the road that you're talking about is one that I like is such a sweet spot of when I say sweet, I don't mean like wonderful spot, but like oh. such a important spot in development for young people that I hope we're changing this flipping it on its head right now with a lot more of this breaking stigma. The, I mean, the TikTok mental health that we see, you know, and all of those things, but, um, kids having access to healthy coping alternatives, right? Like, I think so many people our age, we're very close in age and, and older weren't, it wasn't normal for our families to have the tools to instill with us, whether it's a broken family or a family that's keeping it all together, you know, um, to have tools to teach like, Hey, when this is happening, these are the you know the healthy alternatives and stuff that you can do, you know, the, the better choices to find, to find peace, to find solution, to find whatever. Um, and so I hear what you're saying that like, yes, it was a bad decision and you have, we all have to take accountability, but what, you know, when you're, when you're wrought with all of these life circumstances, it makes sense that kids turn to the only solution that they're being exposed to really. I mean, right. But I, I think, and, and you're right. And I totally agree with you. And I think like I saw, I, I saw people who didn't know how to manage conflict. I saw that mm -hmm. when you don't like somebody that you just don't speak to them anymore. I saw that you create, you want to win and you want to make sure that you're doing like everything you possibly can to make sure that, you know, you're not letting somebody else look better than you or whatever the example was. So I started to see that and say, Oh, like, so when I see conflict, I'm going to get extra stress and I have to get rid of it right away. Right. I think this, it's a slippery slope. Justification becomes a very slippery slope. And I agree with you that, my parents, that generation, mental health wasn't talked about mm -hmm. enough like it is today. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to do the yes and. However, mm -hmm. on the other side of that, it's easy for people to point at like the boogeyman and say, my life isn't where it is now because my parents got divorced and all and that. Because that becomes an easy excuse. I mean, because there's like there's commodity in, in, in being a victim, right? Mm -hmm. People will feel sorry for you. You'll get attention. And that can be addicting as well because, again, like my situation to a lot of people, it's like, man, my childhood sucked and there was a lot of pain and turmoil. But because I kept pointing to that as an excuse to behave in the way I did, it nearly cost me my life because I just kept... Do you think you did it? Like as a teenager, you were not knowingly like making those choices saying like, my life sucks, therefore I'm going to do... Yeah, because I was doing it just to manage to feel good. You know, I was doing, I know, but I mean, like, did you have the awareness and the insight to, cause a lot of us are in a place where we're like, all we know is we need peace, but we don't really understand at, at that young age, our brains haven't developed to the point where it's right. like, I need peace. Peace would be normal right now. I don't have it because of all of my life circumstances. Like what level of awareness did you have that when you say like, 
I was in a victim place. Like to me, that translates, I know what's going on. This is what's happening. And I'm knowingly choosing this because I feel like I'm a victim. Like, do you feel like that level of insight was there? There, there was Has definitely, it, I think I had to grow up fast given my scenario. Yeah. You know, where I felt like a little disconnected from my family. I felt like I had to like, really like think about what was going on in my life and, and, and gain introspection because of like the terminal that existed mm -hmm. in school and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I would imagine like, there's not, there's not a 13 or 14 year old listening to the podcast. It's people in their, maybe in their twenties or thirties or forties. And yeah. so I share this for that, for them Yes. to say like, for me, I used what was going on in my childhood as an excuse to behave in a, in a certain way for years up until I was 21 until I went to jail. Mm. And it was because of that, that my life got a lot worse. I mean, there was obviously the trauma. There was obviously the inability to miss, to ma manage my emotions. But a lot of it was because I believed that I deserved to, to behave that way because of what people had quote unquote done to me. Mm. And I think that can limit people. Yeah. Because you can't change the past. You can only change the way you respond to it. And I'm not saying that the 12 year old me, the 13 year old me would have wanted to hear that, but I, but somebody who's now been on the other side of this for 15 plus years, mm -hmm. I have a lot of insight on the reality of the situation because I, I constantly was blaming everybody else for my problems and never took any responsibility. And because of that, my life didn't get any better because the only way out of a situation like that is forward is by finding some level of accountability or responsibility to do whatever you can to change. Yeah. Like pointing the finger at the past or just feeling sorry for yourself, like feels good in the moment, but does it really get you what you want? I mean, no. No, it's the instant gratification right. that gives them momentary relief. So what, <clears throat> as you're like going through uh, school continuing, I can only imagine it snowballed to pet beyond pot. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it snowballed quick because what happened was because I was just so unhappy with myself emotionally and I was doing whatever I could to fit in mm -hmm. because I thought that, okay, if, if these kids are bullying me, maybe I will act a certain way and they'll start to like me. Mm -hmm. One of the things I tried to do, which again, this is just what kids do is kids typically will have a party when their parents aren't home. It's a very standard thing sure. I think to do, right? Well, my parents never really left town. So my mom went to the hospital, had to have a, an operation done and I knew she wasn't going to be home. So I like made up some story of where I was going to stay, left a, a window open in her townhouse, snuck in, had tons of people in there. Party got busted by the cops and then got into trouble because of that. A couple weeks later, my 16th birthday, I was weighing out a little bit of pot to sell to my neighbor. My mom caught me doing that, kicked me out of her house completely. Like I went, it was 50 50 between my mom and my dad at mm -hmm. that point, kicked me out of her house that night and went to go live with my dad who lived like, in a more Tennessee-like setting, very rural, drive your tractor to school day at the high school, farmland and stuff, completely different environment. And I wasn't as close with my dad like I was with my, my mom growing up. So I felt so abandoned and angry and all the feelings you would feel of resentment, I mean, just sadness. And I said things to my mom that no mom should ever have to hear from her mm -hmm. son. But it was out of a place of despair and, and anger yeah. And she, you know, pop back then was like heroin. They thought of it as like kind of like heroin today. Oh, yeah. It wasn't like yeah. the thing where it's like mostly legal now in, in many states. Yeah. Um, and so I share that because that was a big turning point emotionally for me. 
because I felt this massive sense of abandonment. And then I changed schools within 24 hours. And then I got, and, and I think the, the insight from my mom and what she wanted was, okay, you're clearly not succeeding in your environment here. Let's just remove you from your environment and place you in a completely different environment. But what she didn't realize is my dad and I butted heads a lot as a kid. I still had all that trauma and those insecurities that I was afraid of talking about because it just wasn't at a place where I wanted to open up, didn't know how to. So I go to this new school, find new friends, do the same stuff I was doing with my old school. And then that catapulted and snowballed, like you said, got out of high school, barely, barely graduated because of attendance issues. Um, you know, started to sell pot to make money, started to get into cocaine. And then what really brought me to my knees was Oxycontin. And it got so bad. That, Can I ask you something yeah. really quick before we go there? What, you know, for, for so many of us that struggle through high school years, right? Like a normal trajectory is we continue to get more and more a sense of accomplishment, self-esteem, you know, I'm making it through these milestones of development that where I get social approval, my parents are proud of me, all these things. But those of us who <laughs> aren't necessarily, like, we're not doing the thing, we're it's going like the, the opposite direction. Like the yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what do you think that your, what was your chief motivator? Did you have any, was there any reward other than in your brain, you know, like as you're going through life, other than the fix you got from doing drugs with friends? I just wanted people to like me. Ooh. I just wanted the people to like me and um because i felt like nobody really liked me truly you know i saw i mean there were my, i know my parents deep down loved me but i didn't you know the relationship there was kind of it's your parents they have to i mean you know yeah. like it, it's but, different when you're but i saw like me getting cut from the sports teams and that immediately will tell you i'm not liked i'm not loved right girls aren't interested in me i'm not liked i'm not loved Kids are bullying me. Friends of mine are bullying me. I'm not liked. I'm not loved. So I'm like, <clears throat> how can I turn that on its head mm -hmm. and get people to like me? Well, I can start behaving like they do a little bit, right? I can start adding value. I can start like bringing drugs to the table. And then how can I deal with how much I hate myself? Mm -hmm. Numb the pain, right? And that was the big motivator for me was just trying to get people to like me. But at the end of the day, like none of that mattered right. because I didn't like myself. Right. And I ended up, you know, the, the, the fastest way to hate yourself, and I said this on another podcast, is to change your identity to, to, to fit the mold of somebody else. Like to, <sighs> to, to lose yourself so much for the sake of trying to fit in with other people that you're so far removed from the person that you actually wanted to become and the person that you actually like that you're looking back and like, what the heck happened? And I did that. And I didn't, it was hard for me to know because like you said, my brain maybe was, it wasn't fully developed and mm -hmm. I didn't have the self-awareness that I have now. I had no idea that was going on, but you end up just hating yourself because you're just, there's, just, there's this cognitive dissonance that exists. It's like, I don't know why I, beca I became this person. Well, that, and do you not believe, I mean, I kind of look back too and think that obviously I can only speak from personal experience of what I felt, but like at a certain point you just lose. I, I couldn't even remember who I felt like I was, what my, my identity was my consequences, whatever, whatever other people said or thought about me. Like there was no, there was no like, 
you know, as healthy people, we have like an internal like dialogue of like, right. this is who I am. This is what I, you know, like when you, who's Patrick Custer, you know, who's Doug Bobst, Bobst, sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's different, but like in that phase, you get far enough along and the, who am I is it's like lost at sea. Right. And especially because it's, and again, it's like, you're not taught as a teenager to like really identify like your values and sure. your morals and like who you want to be outside of like the typical, like, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, I want to be an astronaut. Or I want to be a lawyer or whatever. Right. Like to, to truly identify like, like the type of person you want to become. And, and so once I, I started to realize, cause it's like here, it's like when you start doing drugs, what I found is that it initially becomes a, a tool to cope with emotions, to have fun, whatever the example is. And then if you go far enough down the, the continuum, down the spectrum, you're now doing drugs to, to deal with the pain that you've caused as a result of doing drugs in the first place, right? Yeah. And that's where I was, where it was like a dog chasing its own tail, where I couldn't get high enough anymore on pot, couldn't get enough of an adrenaline rush, so then it's cocaine. I mean, cocaine gives me this crazy adrenaline rush, but then I'm like, oh, I have anxiety and fear so like that goes goes about as well together as somebody trying to lose weight and eating pizza and ice cream every day. It's just probably not going to work so well, right? So then I had to figure out. And what ended up happening is I was so addicted to my environment. I talked and I, I, I talked about this on the podcast that I think Aaron sent you. That I did whatever I could to maintain my friendships, even for the sake of my own mental health and physical health. Mm. And what I mean by that is I started getting crazy panic attacks as a teenager. I think I was... I don't remember the exact age, 17, 18 years old. And I ended up in the emergency room for the panic attacks. And so you would think the logical, rational decision would be like, Doug, you've had a good run. You've made some, you've made some poor decisions. Let's like change your life a little bit because yeah. you're in the hospital now thinking you're having a heart attack, but it's really just your, your mental health and your nervous system is completely like dysregulated. But I was so addicted to my friends because I felt the sense of purpose and belonging there sure. that I didn't get from my family, that I had to do whatever I could to maintain that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And the lifestyle was riding around for like countless hours throughout the day, you know, getting high, eating food, listening to music. I mean, and honestly, like you look back and we had, we had, we had a lot of fun. I mean, it's like some of that stuff, those memories, mm -hmm. like as much as it, it nearly destroyed my life, I wouldn't take those back because yeah. I learned, you learn a lot, right? Well, yes. And I think that like, I love that you bring that up because this, like this place where so many people are already off their tracks and there's like that something happens and there could be a switch to like go down a different fork in the road. It also makes so much sense that it doesn't go to the correct fork in the road because it's not so easy. Like when you look at the people that were your age at this point, how old were you when we're talking this period when we're talking 17, about? 18. Okay. So when you think about the, the people that were doing what they were supposed to do, making good grades, um, do, doing things that society would say you need to do in order to achieve this and then get ready and go to college, um, to just transition to a life where you're going to bed on time, you're doing the right stuff, you're doing your homework, you're doing you know, like all these things that you check the off. The, like that can't, that doesn't happen overnight, you know? And I think there's so much, there's so much pressure to like, if something happens, people think like, oh, well just clean up your act. 
Well, just cleaning up your act isn't, and here's my, where I'm going with this is, yes, it's a choice. We can all make a choice at any given t- point. There could be a fork in the road at any day in our lives, but the, that, that precious, those precious years when we are like developing like in, into adults and you've already started creating that social pathways, that social pattern. And in your mind, you, you just described what connection meant for you, what feeling fulfilled as much as you knew what it could feel like at that stage in life meant for you. Um, and like, so all of that, you know, we have the reward center in our brain at 17 years old, somebody who's got their life quote unquote together, that's doing their homework, that's getting good grades, it's getting the social rewards. That's probably going to go to college when they grow up, you know, all those things. Um, you know, they're already in this repetitious thing. They're getting that social feedback and social reward that said that makes them feel good, makes them want to go to the next step. But for somebody to step in and just like snap out of it and clean up their act, right? Like, like, it's it's like chinese yeah it's tough yeah and so i i just i I think that so many people or as i would say normies that have not struggled like we did don't understand the how sensitive at at that developmental stage it is and how hard without the right tools it is for somebody's trajectory trajectory to shift even with a major life incident right like what you're talking about this podcast is brought to you by promises behavioral health if you or a loved one are struggling with trauma addiction or mental health we are ready to answer your questions and help you take that next step call our admission center at 888-648-4098 or visit us online at www.promises.com our team is ready and waiting to answer the call for help. Yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, I didn't have the tools. Um, I mean, I, I tried to go to, you know, I was in like therapy and I was on medication, like anxiety medication, mm-hmm. but it didn't fix the the pain and, and it didn't fix right. like the environmental stuff where I'm like now being exactly I'm still in the environment yep. and I'm being still being bullied and it's like just suppressing all my emotions and just compounding all the anxiety. So then... When I, even when if I went to therapy once a week, like is it? It's not really helping me. I mean, I'm just going there and talking about my problems, but right. it's not fixing the environment. No, if you're, I mean, let, let's say you fix your anxiety, and if you have depression, let's fix the the depression. So you're no longer depressed and anxious. You're a human, so you still have a longing for connection, and you still have the innate need to wake up and feel like you've done something worth being alive that day. And if those two things aren't being fulfilled it doesn't matter if your, your mental health needs are being taken care of. I mean, it's the cycle starts over. We're naturally going to go to a place where we get that fulfillment. Right. And so it only makes sense that you, you know, continue to go back to that, to the, that spot. Yeah. And then but for, for me, what really like did it was just painkillers because I, I, I started, what, what ended up happening was I would get these panic attacks when I was smoking a bunch of weed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, well, crap, I can't get high anymore with my friends without having these crazy panic attacks. Because what would happen is we would we went to the bookstore and my friends like helped me pick out a book that's like how to stop panic attacks. It was, it was kind of embarrassing. Did you right? go to the bookstore high? Of course. <laughs> and I'm sitting, I, I would have to pull my car over because I would have a panic attack. They'd have to drive my yeah. car and I'd sit in the back seat because it was just, 
embarrassing. And I couldn't figure out how to solve it. And I, and even with that, I still wanted to maintain that lifestyle. So somebody ended up offering me a, a five milligram Percocet one day, took the Percocet and I could get high without anxiety. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. Mm -hmm. Like I can now maintain that lifestyle. And it just it's quick. I mean, I, I, I knew I wasn't eating like spinach, but I didn't realize how quickly those things were going to become addictive for me, like mm -hmm. the painkillers. Mm -hmm. Because like a lot of people, I rationalize. I was like, oh, at least I'm not doing heroin. At least I'm not putting a needle in my arm. Mm -hmm. These are like, yeah, you know, for, so, you know, these are just pills you would take, right? And five milligrams quickly turn into 10, 20, 40, until I'm doing like hundreds of milligrams up my nose every single day to support my habit and having to do like 150, 160 milligrams in the morning just to be able to get out of bed. Um, yeah, it was just a really dark time in my life. I, for comparison's sake, I want to like for for like a cancer patient, I and mean, it's all across the board. But I would say like probably in a day. Well, we here's the example I use sometimes okay. is like I remember one of my uh, personal training clients. Either I think he got his hip replaced, and they gave mm -hmm. him a bottle of like I forget how many, but it was like the five milligram hydrocodone mm -hmm. Percocet pills, and he's like. He, you know, because he's not an addict and he's taking them as prescribed mm -hmm. for the normal person, they make you kind of like zone out a little bit. Right. Cause mm -hmm. you're not used to it. And I remember just sitting next to him when we were watching football or something on TV. I was like, you know, I used to like snort a whole, a whole bottle of those every single day. Right. And he's just like, what? <laughs> like he was in like, and he's like, you know, he's taking like one and he's like zoning out. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, I was bad. Yeah. And you, but you just don't realize it's like you don't realize how bad it's getting because your tolerance builds up right and then the like and that too just to speak to that really quick so many people don't understand if they've never been connected to or educated on many people have been connected to somebody with opiate addiction but they don't maybe understand the science behind and it's worth speaking to because it, i think one of the reasons why it's so addictive is to my knowledge, I don't think there's another drug that the body builds, the tolerance raises so quickly when using, right? And Yeah, well, I th and I think the other thing too is I've heard that it's very unique and that it does two things. It gives you that euphoric feeling and it suppresses pain. Mm -hmm. So you get the best of both worlds. Yep. Like cocaine, when you do coke, you get, you get euphoria, it doesn't suppress pain. Right. You know, when... You do weed, it gives you a little bit, but the, the oxy, it's like, especially if you're, I mean, I was a bougie oxy person where I only snorted the oc, the OC like 80. So it had to say OC on one side and 80, like the Oxycontin mm -hmm. brand. And they were time release because they were meant for people to take them throughout the course of a day, like as prescribed. Well, I would lick the time release off. Of course. And I'd take a hose clamp and I would like shave it so I could get it as fine as possible. That's how bad I was. So make sure it got up into my system as, as fast as possible. Right? Because uh, then you feel the mo the maximum impact when it's ingested. And, yeah, right? and, yeah. And it was like, because if you tried to snort like the hydrocodones, they, they, they had like acetaminophen in them and like they had the filler in it. Mm -hmm. And it would like ooze out of your nose because those, those aren't meant to be snorted, right? right. There's filler. And they're for a reason, I think, right? Absolutely. Yeah, they um, knew people were doing it. I think that's one of the reasons why they added it. Yeah. yeah. And um, gosh, it's so crazy to think about. Like when you said, because I was bougie, I, <laughs> I would only do the, man, when we're in the height of our sickness, the things that we tell ourselves about how, well, like what the stories that we say, like, I'm not, I'm not that bad. Like I, 
I'm not as bad as other people because I've got standards. When it was, and I was lucky because I was selling a bunch of weed and I was making a bunch of money. So I, I had the the income mm. to support that habit to mm-hmm. be able to spend whatever, 50, 60 bucks on a pill. And if I'm buying, you know, four or five pills a day, it's a couple hundred bucks a day. I mean, I could support that because of the amount of income I was making. I wasn't like somebody who was in dire straits. Right. I mean, there, there did get a point, come a point where... I was hurting more for money as I progressed selling weed more where I, you know, I've got, I got robbed a couple times. And when I got arrested, which ended up inevitably, inevitably changing my life, I didn't have the income that I had. Mm. So I'd have to do shadier stuff or, or lie about certain things to be able to support that. Habit. So how did the consequences progress? So at the beginning you're selling, you're selling pot to support your habit. Were you experiencing any consequences to say? I mean, other than like the general stuff with family or, like self-esteem as far as like legal consequences all around like what I, mean, yeah. I got ro- I got robbed a couple times where I mean I was in the car with somebody that said they had a gun and they were gonna pull it on me if I didn't give them my weed that happened uh, I had somebody else that I was doing a big drug deal with at my apartment and just walked out with a bunch of a friend of mine that I thought we were friends and I thought it was a joke mm. and so I ended up being coming indebted to my drug dealer um, and owing him some money and there was a point where I remember sitting down with my grandparents and I just, I told them, I'm like, I owe this guy some money. I want to be done. How much was? At that point, I think it was, it was maybe like two grand that I owed him. Yeah. Which isn't a whole lot of money. Right. Um, in that world. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, I think I, I knew I'd ask my grandparents for money because I was like, I want to be done. Like, I'm so just tired because I just didn't, I lost trust and I was getting sloppier because of my, I was more concerned about my opiate addiction and how I was going to get that versus like running the pot business that I was selling the drugs. Um, and I also like mentally, I was just, I was just so spent and smoked mm-hmm. emotionally. And um, they, but they were like, no, we're not, you got yourself into this. We're not going to give you money to support like an illegal habit. Which- well, and also I can only imagine that at this point you're like, had you built, had you gotten to the point where you were starting to tell a bunch of lies? Yeah. And then that, and that ended up progressing to me getting arrested. So sink it in my 2008, was riding around with a few of my friends to make a drug deal. Had a half a pound of pot in my trunk, a couple thousand dollars in cash in the glove box. And I had a busted headlight that I had been meaning to fix for for um, for a long time that I didn't because it's like when you're in the thick of addiction, all you care about is like drugs. Like nothing else matters to right. you. It's like a this crazy religion. It's like a cult in a way. Sure. And so since me getting the the headlight fixed directly didn't help me get high more, even though indirectly it would have, right? Cause I wouldn't have gotten pulled over. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't just didn't do it. And um, so there's a cop running radar cause it's one of the biggest drinking nights of the year. I flashed my high beams at the police officer thinking that would hide the fact that I had a busted headlight, but just gave him a reason to pull me over. My heart sinks in the pit of my stomach. I'm like, man, my life is definitely over because I just knew I had a gut feeling that, that I was gonna get pulled over. And I think subconsciously I wanted to get caught because again, didn't get the headlight changed. He pulls me over. I stand ready to get my license and registration out. He senses something's like up. He asks me if I could search, he could search the car. I say yes, you know, and like pulls me out of the car. One thing leads to the next, finds the pot in the trunk, finds the money, finds a scale and ends up putting me in handcuffs. And I'm sitting in the back of this cop car facing felony drug charges, possession with intent to, to distribute marijuana. Mm. I remember just thinking to myself, it's like, I'm sure most people, if, they're, if you're in recovery, you've had a moment like this where your bad consequences all come to a head. And all of a sudden there's this point and you think to yourself, what the hell happened? Like, how did I get here? 
And for me, it was like, how did the kid who just wanted to be loved, how did the kid who just wanted to fit in, how did this kid who just wanted to be good at sports, like how does this kid now facing felony drug charges? And it was all because I just couldn't deal with life. I didn't know how to deal with life. So ended up going to court a couple months later, September 30th, 2008, the judge, the judge uh, sentenced me to five years in jail, suspended everything but 90 days, give me five years probation, 200 hours community service, all kinds of fines and drug classes. But he's like, Doug, you're young, you're 20. This felony conviction is going to haunt you for the rest mm -hmm. of your life. He's like, I'm going to make you a deal. I'm like, deal. I'm going to jail. Like, what's the deal? And um, he's like, if you complete everything without messing up at the end of your five years of probation, I'll take the felony conviction off your record, give you a PBJ. And at that point, I, I didn't think I was going to live to see my 25th birthday because I'd already gone to several friends' funerals, like people that were in my friend group, not sure. just people on Facebook, right? Yeah. And I just had no hope of living that far and ended up reporting to jail a few weeks later and it changed my life. That's amazing. Did you say, did, ever since then, stay on straight and narrow? That's it, yeah. I mean, but it was, and I bring up the victim thing because it was an important turning point for me when I was in jail. Because when I got, when I reported the jail first few weeks, I had to detox cold turkey from Oxy, which oh. was brutal. And then my cellmate got me to start working out with him. But before I worked out with him, he, he was questioning me about my story. And he's like, why are you in jail? He was like asking me what was going on. I was like, well, my parents, girls rejected me, sports. And he looked at me in the PG version. And he's like, quit being a victim. I was just like, what do you mean? And he's like, you're blaming everybody for your problems but yourself. He's like, there's plenty of people that went through you, what you went through that aren't in jail, right? And I'm mm -hmm. like, yep. He's like, you have two choices. Be a man. Look yourself in the mirror and say, you got yourself here. It's up to you to change. No one's going to come and save you. Or go be a victim. Go cry in the corner and blame everybody else. And, and I felt like empowered for the first time in my life that I was like, man, I think this guy's right. Like I have been blaming everybody else for my problems. My life's clearly a mess, so I don't know what I'm doing. And um, got down to do a push-up. Couldn't do a push-up. Could barely walk. And with his motivation and encouragement, training me in there every day, I was able to do a set of 10 push-ups and run a mile by the time my jail sentence was over. And the day I went into jail, I cried because I didn't want to go in. The day I left, I cried because I didn't want to leave because of this crazy transformation that happened. And he gave me a workout plan that I still have framed in my place so I don't forget where I came from. Mm. I asked him how I could repay him. He's like, don't mess up, pay it forward. And so that's been the catalyst for what I do now. Man, that's awesome. Yeah. Okay, I want to draw a comparison to when you went into jail and your psyche was at a certain point, which what I like to, I personally describe, I want to hear your description, actually, sure. I'm not going to describe it, <laughs> but, um, you know, your will to live, you talk about, I didn't think I was going to see 25. Right. Did you want to see 25? What was your, do you know what I'm saying? Like, was there, yeah, was I mean, there I, a passive p passivity that, that was just, you know, um, where was your, well, I was convinced I was a complete loser and a failure. And I think, and I think it's hard because I think sometimes like I was justified to feel that way based on my life record at that mm -hmm. point, 21 jobs by the time I was 21 years old, damaged relationships, no girlfriend in grade school. It wasn't achieving what I wanted, completely self-destructed my life. So it was valid for me to feel like a failure and a loser. Does that help me get better? I mean, absolutely not. But there was definitely times where I didn't want to live, where I would snort up, I would line up a line of like Coke and Oxy. And I would think to myself, if I snorted this and I didn't wake up, like who would show up at my funeral? Mm -hmm. And I had thoughts like that. But it wasn't because 
but it was because I didn't, I didn't know a way out. Like I didn't think my life was going to get any better. I just thought that it was going to end up just self-destructing no matter what. So what was the point of even trying to change? So my psyche was terrible. Like I, when I was in, when I got into jail, they, they like looked at me and they thought I was a zombie because I was completely out of it. Mm. I was, com- my, I was emotionally completely unstable, screaming sometimes in jail because not only was I coming off these drugs, I was smoking cigarettes too before I went to jail. I had to come off of those. And I didn't know how to manage pain. I didn't know how to manage stress in a way that was healthy. And it was like, uh, I was like in this boiling pot of water. Mm-hmm. Like, and I needed to figure out how to like deal with the heat yeah. because there was no way, I, if I created, if I started to create drama, I would have got my butt kicked in jail. If I had done something stupid in there to deal with the pain, I could have gotten more time. Like there was no way out for me other than to just deal with the hardship head on and be comfortable being uncomfortable with the realness and the rawness of all of my emotions. And that mm. I got super lucky. And I think David Goggins talks about this where I think it's, it was him that says something like, you know, it's easy to do like meditation and work out and do all these things when, when life is good. But when you're forced to use these things, when you're in the thick of adversity, it completely changes you. And that's what it did for me. Like I was in this, I was in the fire mm. when I was, for, when I was teaching myself and learning from my cellmate how to deal with life. So that it built this massive muscle for me that when I got out, so life didn't seem as challenging anymore. Mm-hmm. Sure, there was challenges, but I taught myself that I could get through the pain. And because I was in there for a few months, not a few days, it just it changed my brain. And I mean, I'm just so fortunate that it did. You know, it, it takes me back to a simple quote that I can't remember uh, who said it a long, long, long time ago, but the, the greatest fear, uh, that we experience as, as humans is the fear of the unknown. Yeah. And I think it drives us to do some of the most consequential participate in some of the most consequential behaviors in our lives and prevents us from achieving goals, changing our lives, you know, all those things. And so, especially with addiction, that's one of the biggest things that keeps us from like the fear of the unknown. I don't know what it's going to feel like for me to actually face my emotions, for me to actually go through detox, for me to actually, you know, do all these things. And when you hit the pit of fire, like what you're talking about, where you have no other choice and this is what it is you're going to go through. You face the discomfort. It's the catalyst to actually bring that, that peace and freedom. And it's such a beautiful thing on the other side, being able to look at it and, and know like, Oh my God. So when I hear, when I talk to people all the time that are, you know, they come to me and I've known that their kid, wife, husband, whatever has had a problem for so long. And because I'm so out loud about my recovery, people tend to, you know, right. Come to me as a resource and, um, you know, and they'll come and they'll, Oh, it's so bad. They're, I I think they're going to go to jail. Yeah. You know, and, and what, what can we do about it? I'm like, no, that's good. Like, that's good. Like, let them go to jail. You know, the the consequence there might be the thing that saves their life. You are quite potentially helping them continue their, their addiction by keeping them from their consequences. The one thing that really helped me was like thinking about the person that I wanted to become Mm -hmm. and then just taking the necessary action every single day to try to become that person. And if I'm being honest, yeah, I, I didn't want to go back to jail. I wanted to be clean. I wanted to do all those things, but I wanted to like, fix the problems of my childhood. Like I wanted to find a way to be happy with myself. So I wanted to chase the six pack, the big biceps, the attention from pretty girls, the mm-hmm. success. 
and what I will say is like, I got those things in my twenties. Like, I mean, there's, I mean, there's pictures of me online where I have like every abdominal muscle possible <laughs> and I'm shredded. And I, and I share that because I was one of the most, I was one, it was one of the most miserable times in my life <sighs> because I had did, I'd done it. I did it for all the wrong reasons. And I got to that place where I looked a certain way and I achieved certain things, and I, but I was still stuck with me. And like, I hadn't done the internal work and like, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't happy with myself or I would, and I would get like attention from girls, but because it wasn't for the right reasons and because I was doing it almost like an addict would mm-hmm. where it was like, Oh, got my fix. Now I'm going to move on to the next thing. It didn't feel good. Mm-hmm. The same thing with success. And that's what led to me becoming a Christian was, was that was that was my inability to be comfortable with my past and let go of the resentments towards myself and towards other people. And I, I used my past as fuel to get me going, but eventually the, that fuel runs out yeah. and you get, cause you can't, it's like, you kind of, you can't continue to make stuff up about your past to use it as fuel. Eventually you're like, all right, why am I really doing this? Sure. And so to bring things kind of full circle, what I realized about, because people are like, people always ask me like, was there anything that somebody could have done for you to make you change? And the reason I, I said earlier, if you had told a 12 year old me, a 13 year old me, some of those things, like, I don't know if I would have changed because what I wanted was to be good at sports, be athletic, to get attention from girls, mm-hmm. to be successful. And when I got those things, I was just as miserable, just in a completely different way. I mean, my mm-hmm. life was together, making great money legally, you know, purpose, meaning, all that stuff. But internally, I was so broken. Like I was so broken that was this. Are you talking post sobriety? Like yeah, you was, had to learn these yeah. lessons. Yes, I okay. was. I was so broken emotionally still that I still saw like the old version of me in the mirror, and people would like pay me compliments. Mm-hmm. Like they would tell me I looked like Mark Wahlberg and all these things when I was when I was in my twenties, and I was like, "Is that a compliment or an insult?" And like people would be like, "Are you freaking like joking? Like are you serious right yeah. now?" But the reason is I I still saw the ugly version of myself in the mirror and who I, who I thought I was before. And I hadn't done the work to like validate that, that I didn't believe any of the compliments. And I had to like, literally, I remember I had to take out a piece of paper because I, I, there was so much cognitive dissonance. I would have to write down like who I was spending time with as a kid, my habits, what I, what I was saying to myself, my jobs and compare it to like now or that in that present moment, just to see on paper yeah. that things had changed. And it was doing that over and over and over again where I finally got to the point like, oh, like I am like a good looking person or I, I am a good human being. Mm-hmm. I'm not this piece of crap that I thought I was for a long time. And faith, God, therapy, like all these things helped me develop this internal fire mm-hmm. that I needed for the external validation to be sweeter. Because today, I think before we recorded, like I'm still like I still care about physical attraction. Sure. I still care about my health. I still care about making money, but it's for much different reasons now. Yeah. It's not for my ego and to falsely inflate my self-esteem. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What I, I want to ask before we close, what was the, was there a specific uh, time where you remember um, that you weren't, you weren't getting the, the inside had to change? Mm. And that you sought a solution in faith, that you sought outside help and counseling. And um, it was it was because there was a couple things that come to mind, but I was very successful in my career as a personal trainer. I mean, I'm still a trainer now. I'm not training as many people, but when I worked at the 
my first job at the gym, I was the most successful trainer mm-hmm. in the first year in the history, my first year of the history of the company. And I share that because I had all this success, but I was still constantly stressed and anxious. And I was like, why am I so anxious? I have, I really have nothing to worry about. Like I'm a single guy, you know, I make great money. I have no real responsibility other than like paying my bills. Like what is the matter with me? I couldn't figure it out. Mm-hmm. That happened chasing, looking like a certain level of physique ended up having panic attacks all over again in my twenties. Um, and it, and then I, I started to have problems where I, things weren't working out with, with women. And one of my clients was a, a pastor at a non-denominational church. And like, I hated God for a long time, hated, um, because I was taught as a kid that if you're good, you go to heaven. If you're bad, you go to hell. And I'm like, well, I'm on the, I'm, I'm on the fast train sure. escalator to hell. Of course you follow that narrative. Yeah. yeah. And I was also like, if God is about love, why am I being treated like this? Yep. Right. So I had those two narratives in my head and my client was like, dude, you got to start coming to church with me. I was like, yeah, right. I'm going to hell for putting you through this workout. Like there's no way I'm going to church with you. And so all this stuff t- started to happen. And, um, and then it, at one point I just kind of broke down and, and ended up giving my life to Jesus, calling my client, you know, and telling him that I was ready. And when I told him his reaction, like he had just won the lottery. I was like, why is this guy so happy? It's just so strange. But then I went to his office, gave my life to Jesus, um, and then just I just started to cry. The same burden that came off my back when I was getting high came off my back that day when I gave my life to Jesus. Mm. Called my mom, told her I was sorry for the first time. Then I went to therapy, and the interesting thing about therapy was I learned about um, homeostasis, mm-hmm. and because I was like trying to figure like this, I was trying to figure out like why I was stressed, even though I had nothing to be stressed about. Mm-hmm. And my therapist was like. Well, how'd you grow up? I'm like I've talked about this extensively. Like I don't really, like, like I don't want to talk about the divorce. She's like no, like what was your nervous system like? Yeah, I was like I was stressed out all the time. She's like your body is used to you're, you thrive in chaos. Like your body is going to naturally create chaos. And I just I'm very logical like that. So once I understood it, I was like oh this makes sense. Now mm-hmm. I just got to figure out a way to you know deal with the chaos mm-hmm. and then also embrace it a little bit and saying like listen like making it in the world you have to be able to thrive during chaos to some capacity. That's mm-hmm. a gift. Like, cause life is not going to be like even keel all the time. So it was learning to accept that and embrace it for what it was while also understanding that it's not going to serve me to be dysregulated all the time. And so working on some practices to help with that. Heck yeah. I love some, some emotional re-regulation coping skills. They're good, good stuff. Um, so, you know, kind of a comment on that, I think is really interesting. Somebody I just interviewed, we were talking about this, uh, the, the goal not being like freedom from the storm, but peace within. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of my favorite, somebody, an alumni from the show, Captain Sandy from Bravo, who is, she's just, uh, yeah, uh, Large, below deck, right? Below deck, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she wrote a book and talked, uh, at length on our interview about how, um, you know, in, in real, so many real life circumstances, like we have to learn how to, um, stop the escapism Yeah, because it doesn't serve anyone. Right. And, um, so when we can learn that on the outside and use that as a metaphor for the inside, it helps us, like you said, like that logic, it brings the logic back into being able to like, just reconcile. I can find peace even in this like kick chaotic storm of emotions that are coming and sometimes that helps regulate and then it's gone shortly after that you know but um 
I want to ask you, cause I know we're about, we're about to wrap up. Uh, what, what for the person or people who've connected with your story today, which has been so impactful and thank you. Thank you so much. Um, what would you like to leave with them as a final word of encouragement? Ugh, so much. I mean, I think, I think the biggest thing I often will tell people is to, is to focus on how far you've come and not how far you have to go. Mm. And I say that because in the world that we're in, it's easy to see the things that you don't have. You know, if you're just constantly scrolling online or just talking to people that are more successful than you or whatever. But I think the way, the way out of a dark situation is just stacking small wins on top of each other and then celebrating those small wins. Because everybody's looking to go from zero to 100. Like the, I would say like from people that I've talked to in the 12-step world, one of the biggest challenges for people when they walk into a meeting is like I'm listening to somebody who's 20 years sober yes. and I'm two days sober, two hours sober. But it's like that person got to 20 years by stacking small wins on top of each other just over a period of time and celebrating those things. There's a reason why there's anniversaries and they celebrate things in recovery, 30 days, 90 days, you know, et cetera. Absolutely. And so I share that because I think that gets lost in the weeds sometimes. And it's important to just focus on just compounding the small wins and, and celebrating like what you have done. And that's one of the, the things that as a trainer, I've helped with my clients. It's like the scale is not always going to move if the goal is weight loss. So it's like, how can we celebrate what you have achieved? Well, you've gone to the gym now 10 times this month where you only, you've only gone to the gym 10 times in the last 10 years, something mm -hmm. to celebrate. Mm -hmm. You're smiling more, something to celebrate. Your kids are happy they're going to the gym, it's something to celebrate. So just <laughs> trying to dig deep and, and finding things that you have achieved um, and then focusing on the journey and, um, and then just knowing that like once you get through it on the other side of it, there's gonna be strength that you're gonna gain that's gonna be helpful for you for the rest of your life. Mm. And the amount of fulfillment that comes from that is irreplaceable. You 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 can't. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine my life without what I've been through. Like I was unconfident, very introverted, you know, no purpose, no self esteem, and it took me going through the depths of hell to help me, you know, become this person that I am now. You wouldn't get, you wouldn't take it back for the world, would you? No, man. All right. Will you tell me that quote? I love that quote. It's something worthy of like putting on a post it and like or framing it. It's so good. The way out of a dark situation or past is by stacking. Do you remember what you said? Yeah. It's like the, the I think the fact the way out of the darkness is by just stacking small wins on top of each other over time. Mm. Beautiful. Because, you know, if you just look at yourself and you're like, well, I'm not going to accomplish that. Well, you won't. That's right. Or if you look at yourself and say, well, what what's going to happen in one year? Like you're going to, you're going to rationalize not doing something. But it's like I said on Savannah's podcast, it's like you have to develop this, whatever it takes mentality Yes. to do whatever you can every single day to become better. And what happens is you stack these days and then you look back a week or two weeks later and you're like, wow, like I'm so different. And it wasn't because you just made one drastic change. It was because you made small changes. Mm. you know, that just compounded over a period of time. Mm. Doug Bobst, thank you so much. This has been amazing. Thanks, man. Appreciate yeah. it. It was an awesome conversation. Absolutely. Hopefully for those of you tuning in that you've been able to think about uh, if there's a major or maybe some many ways in your, 
miniature ways in your life that you know that you want to change and improve that you can apply these really great principles to your life. And so we'd love to hear from you. Um, you can always look at the show notes below. You can follow Doug. Um, we'll have that all listed at the bottom of the episode. Thank you to each and every one of you tuning in. And I'll close by reminding you, it's never too late to start loving yourself. And you're always only one decision away from a completely different life. This podcast is brought to you by Promises Behavioral Health. If you or a loved one are struggling with trauma, addiction, or mental health, we are ready to answer your questions and help you take that next step. Call our admission center at 888-648-4098 or visit us online at www.promises.com. Our team is ready and waiting to answer the call for help.